1: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are things?
2: Fine. Thank you, Thea. How are you?
1: I'm okay. I have been away for a week, as you may have noticed, and um, lost track of everything, really. So, <laughs> I did <all> notice, Thea. <laughs> just lost track of everything. Um, <laughs> all I know is... Um, what we're going to talk about today <laughs> and i'm oblivious to pretty much everything else uh, that is in the issue so if there is anything you'd like to point um out to me in particular that that would be good just a few things to tether me in the week well uh, it's the there's a focus on art history this week so
2: there's james hall writing about statues and what to do with them tom phillips on woli shoyinka's book about use abuse and dissonance in african art traditions Uh, There is Dinah Birch reviewing Gwendolyn Riley's new novel, um, which people have been talking about. And Adam Miles-Jones is writing about the cinema festival, which you know about, Made in Italy. I do. Um, And he's doing the films. Now, this is cruel because I'm going to have to speak Italian to you. So this is unfortunate for me. He's writing about three films, one of them Padre Nostro. Perfect. And Fortuna.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
2: the, the third one is in English, luckily, Life as a Bee movie, <laughs> which um Adam Mars Jones calls a slightly baffled tribute to the director Piero Vivarelli, unsure whether to treat him as a social pioneer, an artist, or a terrible warning.
1: Oh, that sounds interesting. So it's Ooh. very um genre-heavy, that is it then, because I think Vivarelli was he was all about the melodrama. He was he was big in in very genre yes. genre-y stuff. So I think there was a Western also, he, he's the guy who um, who kind of pioneered um, the whole musicarello genre. Do you know about that? I don't think so. Musicarello is where uh, comedy films are basically vehicles for famous singers who have hit songs that they want to plug. I think you probably call Hard Day's Night a musicarello.
2: I was going to say all, all the Elvis films, some of yeah. which are brilliant. Actually.
1: Yeah, I think that was his, his thing. I mean, I'm sure he did other things as well, but that's what immediately springs to mind. He did lots of things.
2: Yeah, and his life sounds a bit a bit like that as well. Frankly. Yes, I think there was a lot
1: of um, little bit of fascism, a little bit of communism. <laughs> a
2: lot, there was a lot of stuff. It sounds like an interesting film. <laughs>
1: yeah. Right. Well, I will look forward to that. Um, now, on firmer ground, here is what we have coming up on this week's show. The second half of the episode will be devoted in its entirety to a new study of Joseph Wright of Derby, the 18th century painter best known for striking representations of labor in a time of industrial revolution. He's been called a painter of light for his emphatic chiaroscuro, particularly in portraits of subjects by candlelight. And yet, says Matthew Krask, the author of a major new book, Joseph Wright of Derby is better appreciated as a painter of darkness, an artist of sorrows and solitudes. Alexandra Harris, who has reviewed Krask's book in this week's TLS, will fill us in. But first, a keenly anticipated work of life writing is published this week Blake Bailey's Philip Roth, The Biography. Elaine Showalter, Professor Emerita of English at Princeton University, has reviewed it for us and joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Elaine. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Well, good afternoon where we are. It's nice to have you on again after um, far too long. I think one of the last pieces you wrote for us before this uh, was on a life of the Victorian children's author E. Nesbitt. So no one can say you don't have range. Well,
3: now for something completely different. Yeah, (laughs)
1: exactly. Um, Also, I suppose the first question is how did Blake Bailey get the gig? I mean, there was apparently a job interview in Roth's apartment I read somewhere in, in 2012 in which Roth asked, How is a Gentile from the Plains equipped to write about a Jew from Newark?
3: Right. Well, this audition has had a lot of publicity and there was a big uh, profile of Blake Bailey in the New York Times this weekend, too. I mean, Ross was looking. He was auditioning for a new biographer. He had fallen out with Ross Miller, who was a very good friend of his and had kind of been given the nod to do the biography. And then Ross Miller, according to Bailey, just was very slow getting started. He did very few interviews over a period of two or three years. People were beginning to die who hadn't been interviewed, and Ross was very frustrated. So he got rid of Ross Miller, very acrimonious split, and then he was looking for somebody new. And Bailey, who is a really excellent and experienced biographer, is certainly um, not Jewish. He's not from Newark. He's from Oklahoma, Uh, His previous subjects were very different from Roth. They were all Gentiles. They were alcoholics. Two of them were bisexual. So it was quite a range. But apparently they just clicked in the interview. And it was a sort of a a good match,
1: a match made in heaven. And he was he, he was given access to uh, everything, wasn't he? I mean, there were no kind of deathbed demands that, and we should say that he was actually there at Roth's deathbed, but there were no demands that you know letters or diaries be burned or other such acts of you know, posthumous influence.
3: No, not then. I mean, he was, you know first of all, he was at the deathbed, which to me is incredibly moving and extraordinary. I mean, I've never heard of a biographer actually being at the bedside as his subject was dying. He was there at the very, very end when the dearest friends were keeping the vigil. Was he there
2: as a biographer, a a biographer rather than a friend? Or do you think it had become a slightly different relationship by then?
3: You know, I don't think at that point there was much of a difference. I think, you know, biographer, friend, whatever, but he was he was there. Uh, He witnessed it. And uh, that's one of the most moving parts of the biography, because he was very courageous about all of his illnesses. And he had so many, he had more illnesses than he had books. But famously, people talk about it at the end, told people to leave. He said, now I have work to do. It was the work of dying when he asked to be taken off his life supports.
1: Does does Bailey give a sense of what it was like to deal with Roth when he was still, um, you know, because he came in about, I think, five, six years before, before the scene you've just described. Does he, does he give a sense of what he was like to, to deal with in terms of um, sort of, is most of the work of it archival or was there is there a sense of real, lively, engaged conversation still between the two men?
3: Well, in the biography, he doesn't really impose himself very much as a first-person narrator you can say from the biography, he does not make enormous use of the archive. I mean, the archive is just gigantic. And I wanted to say there is some ambiguity about whether it will be destroyed. Ross' executors, his agent, Andrew Wiley, and another one who was a friend of his, Judas Gollier, are going to decide at some point whether or not to destroy the archive, which is kind of extraordinary
1: thing in and of itself. You know, And I'm sure a lot of people will be weighing in and saying, you must not destroy the archive. That's, that's astounding. I mean, I wonder um, what the basis for such a decision would, I mean, there was no demand made from Roth, was there to, to destroy it or otherwise? I
3: think, I think there was, I think in the biography, he says that at some point, Roth says he wants it destroyed. He doesn't want a lot of people meddling around in it. He, you know, everything is there, but he doesn't want, want it to go on forever. But I, I wonder if the enormous response to Bailey's biography may sway them, because you know you're saying you know long anticipated and people are always saying the much anticipated biography. Really, uh, they think I think they must be surprised and gratified. Incredible response, so many reviews, so much excitement, profiles, stories, Twitter. You know, I mean, it's really been quite a quite a launch of this book and and they may be moved by the sense of how important Roth
1: has been as a figure and you know how eager people are to know about his life. Although in a sense I'm wondering if that doesn't feed into the idea of this being the defend, you know it's the biography of Philip Roth the definitive take and they're hoping that then you know you draw a line under it and and and, and that's where it will end. I suppose one one of the things they might do is is put a time limit on it, you know, sort of impose secrecy, impose confidentiality for 50 years or whatever, like what, like we do with historically sensitive documents. Well,
3: right. I mean, I think some of the materials, some of the personal materials have, it's already been said they're closed until 2050. And, you know, the archives, uh, there are archives that are personal, but there are archives that are literary, so to speak, there are manuscripts and drafts and and, uh, Bailey does not deal with those at all. It, he, you know, he talks about the novels, he's, he's not a literary critic as such, he's a biographer and he really focuses on the life and from my point of view that's plenty, 900 pages is, you know, enough, so I wasn't looking for more.
1: Sure, and so I mean, I, I'm guessing he begins at the beginning with the familiar stories about Roth's upbringing in, in uh, Jewish Newark, does he shed new light for people who, who may think that they already know that story quite well?
3: Well, uh, he actually begins, you know, back in the shtetl, which I thought actually was, I, I really skipped over that, that chapter. Roth didn't know anything about his ancestors. And, you know, uh, I think that was a kind of classic biography. You begin with the ancestors and so on. And I, I think that was so exciting about people back in the in, in the old country. And then he starts with the family in Newark. And what I really liked was that, although of course he has to talk about the father and the mother. And Newark. He puts a spotlight on, on Ross' older brother, Sandy, who himself is a fascinating creature and very much a contrast to Ross. He was the adored, admired older brother. He was handsome. He could jitterbug. He was an art student. He went to New York and he drew naked women. You know, I mean, Ross was totally in awe of him, but he compromised. He gave in to the parents in every respect. And his very saddened life you know things that he had to give up I think was an example for Roth who just went in the opposite direction
1: mm, and I suppose you can see that right from the very beginning um in you know literary fame came to Roth quite suddenly in 1959 with Goodbye Columbus which was yeah. um, a sort of a satire of that meeting the girl and, and settling down and what it is that you want from a relationship and uh, and and all of that sort of stuff he, he tapped into very fertile ground obviously there, there was a readership um, They're eager and waiting, and you were, you were among them.
3: Yes, I was. I mean, I, was, I, I read it when it came out in 1959 and was absolutely swept away. And that was, of course, not the most radical book, Goodbye Columbus, but I totally identified with it. And, and the heroine, Brenda Potemkin, was such so exciting and modeled on Maxine Grofsky, who herself was an amazing, she deserves a biography, incredibly glamorous figure. Of the late '50s, she she refused to give Bailey an interview, which is interesting. But she was a kind of heroic figure, and when I was um, a college student and so on, people kind of knew about Maxine Grofsky. So she was, just, you know, kind of as well known as Roth was himself. The thing that you know really strikes me about Goodbye Columbus is, from the very beginning, his heroes did not want to get married and have children. That was one of the things from the very
1: start. Exactly. And she she went to Radcliffe, famously the the heroine in Goodbye, Columbus. And and it's it just it's that thing of of how one decision or one kind of difference can can make the life. And then you're on a completely different trajectory, which is obviously what happened with Philip Roth as well, compared to uh, to his brother. Yeah. And there's then there's then a 10 year gap before Portnoy's complaint, the book that, you know, really, really loudly announced him. Um, There were a few books in between, including the only book written from a woman's perspective, uh, which is interesting when you consider what went on in this decade. It wasn't exactly uneventful.
3: No, I mean, he had really the most catastrophic first marriage. You, you, wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Uh, however, people may feel about Philip Roth and there are some people you know, who come to this and they say, no, we don't like him. He's a misogynist, he, whatever. Um, you would not wish this on anybody. Terrible situation she tricked him into marrying her. Um, She said she was pregnant. He believed it. He gave her money for an abortion. She faked the abortion uh, because, of course, she wasn't pregnant to begin with. And they were so so ill-matched. She had two children already who he rather took under his wing. And then in a spectacular turn of fate after they had separated and she was threatening to get the maximum alimony for him. And at that point, he was not making a lot of money. She dies in a car crash in Central Park and he's free. That was so astonishing.
1: And and for for a novelist who is so clearly inspired by... uh the psychology of of his characters and his and his alter ego in this case you know psychological complaints the kind of the patient therapist confessional and all of that sort of stuff is there much psychologizing that goes on in Bailey's volume and if there is does does that come off or is he very careful to to not stray down those those paths too much
3: no he does he does not i mean he's he's really quite detached he does not interpret he doesn't judge he doesn't you know intervene to say, well, this looks like he was paranoid or anything. He really doesn't say those things. He just lets you think about it, which which I think is quite interesting and also kind of brave of him, because it opens it up to all the readers to have their own points of view and to take issue with him.
1: Famously, when when he was employed by Roth as or appointed by Roth as as biographer Roth said to him uh, you know I don't I don't want you to rehabilitate me I want you to make me interesting and I suppose Bailey took that to mean that perhaps answering such questions would have been to explain to attempt to explain or even apologize for him exactly I mean I I think you would have to be a very very bad biographer not to make Roth interesting
3: how <laughs> could you not how could he not be interesting but he doesn't try to rehabilitate him he doesn't ex- he gives you just about everything, I think, you know, as far as you can tell from this, and I've read one of the other biographies that, that adds some names, but he doesn't apologize. He doesn't try to justify anything. It's just there. And then it's up to the reader to, to respond. And obviously, people will have different reactions. There are some people who have reviewed the book already who are just outraged and horrified, by the details of how Roth treated women, especially young women with whom he was involved. And they say, well, there's it. He's a misogynist. It's terrible. And then you add to that representations of women in some of the novels, not all, but many. Absolutely right. I mean, some of the books, I have taught five courses on Roth and there are some novels that I just cannot bear to teach because the representations of women are just so ugly and crude.
1: And does that inevitably, I imagine in the classroom scenario, does that inevitably become a kind of a a major talking point that almost eclipses the rest of the work?
3: It it does and it doesn't. I mean, I I started teaching Roth after I had retired from Princeton and I've taught um, these five courses uh, through a bookstore in Washington which runs a big literary program of courses. So I had adult participants and it was interesting because almost – All of them, when we started the class, said they did not like Philip Roth. They came to the course, especially in the beginning when I was teaching Portnoy's Complaint, and they said, well, I've never liked Roth. Really, I looked at Portnoy's Complaint. I never wanted to read anything again. I was totally disgusted, but I'm curious, and let's see. And as we went through the classes again and again, and many of them came back. I did different novels in every class, and many of them came back. Up until the end and in the last class he was dying and we knew that because it was in the newspapers and by the end people had changed their minds completely and they were really quite grief stricken when he was dying surprised themselves so i think that it's partly a question of how you're introduced and how much you read and what you read well as you
2: say what you read because if you say that you couldn't bear to teach some of them it's it i suppose part of the point is that there's a body of work you don't have to ex- you don't have to take the whole body of work and say this is all absolutely wonderful clearly it's not and and you know there are there are some that that people might want to study and celebrate and others that they might
3: not i guess yes exactly i mean some of them i think are, are even at the end in the, the the nemesis novel some of them i think are are hard to read because women bear the, the brunt of his despair and you know, sense of existential despair at the end of his life. And the women's are the one um, you who know, have brain cancer with terrible scars. It's not exactly misogyny, but they become the symbolic carriers. He's just as hard on the men though. And there are so many novels uh, with them. And I, I mean, I've taught Portnoy's Complaint which is certainly not a book you would want to go to for positive representations of of women sexually, but it is such a great book. And I think that, I I don't know, I think people reading it maybe in a more detached context can't help but like it. And for so many people, it was a book they never forget. Like you say, you know, where were you, you know, when you heard about Kennedy's assassination and people what were you doing when you first read Portnoy's Complaint?
2: It is interesting, um, um, and with what Thea said about the only book written by a a woman's perspective, and to to have that different perspective, because you also say, I think, that you don't think that there there was a better female figure than than the figure uh, modelled on Maxine Gronsky, which was very early, wasn't it?
3: No, I mean, I think he was writing the two novels, Letting Go and, and the, one, the One After. I mean, he's trying to be a James Ean novelist. He's not a Jamesian novelist. And they're very earnest and well-intended and, to me, very dull. And I think it's interesting about Roth that in the beginning, every 10 years, he writes an, a terrific book. Um, there's Goodbye, Columbus. He's 26 in 1959, and then in 1969, he's 36 and he writes Portnoy. And then 10 years later when he's 46, he writes The Ghostwriter.
1: And The Ghostwriter was a bit of a game changer in a sense, because I mean, uh, that's when Nathan Zuckerman, who had been around as a, a, a minor character since the mid seventies, I think, but he comes center stage there. And that, that sort of represents a kind of ramping up at this point, doesn't it?
3: Yes, I think he had really found his alternative voice. He'd been experimenting with that. But when he hit on Nathan Zuckerman, it was just perfect. And Zuckerman is a novelist. And his being a novelist, I think, makes all the difference. And then Zuckerman really runs with it as the alter ego, well up into to the 20s until 27, until in Exit ghost, he is fine, he finally dies. And people have written you know critics have written biographies of Nathan Zuckerman, mock biographies of Zuckerman himself. And in some of the novels, I mean, I, I feel about the novels, American Pastoral, which people, a lot of people think is the best one. For me, is a bit limited or flawed because although Zuckerman begins and introduces the story, he is the narrator of the first chapter of American Pastoral. He doesn't come back at the end. So it's a kind of open frame narrative. And I like the ones where Zuckerman comes back better, as in The Human Stain, where he becomes a character in the book not just the narrator of the book. And you begin to see the question I always ask about these books is why is this person telling this story? So when Zuckerman mm-hmm. tells the story, I want to see what happens to him as a result. too.
1: Um, did you, a uh, slightly um, different tack now, did you ever, did you ever meet him? I never did. And I have a number of friends who, who knew him. Um, and I
3: suppose if I had I mean, I'm a huge admirer of Ross, and I suppose there were various times when I could have, you know, begged and besieged and said, can I come along for lunch or something like that. (laughs) Um, It would never, you know, been more than just an acquaintance, but I never, I never wanted to. I think for me, it was always kind of intimidating what I read about him. I I didn't, I I didn't think that we would click. I, I thought I would be there very much as a, you know, as a fan and an eager you know, academic or something like that. I, 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 Unlike Hermione Lee, who really hit it off with him, and
1: mm. uh,
3: I, I would not be in that in that circle. So I never did. But, you know, I, knowing a lot of people who knew him and talked about him, it's kind of interesting. And the ones who spoke to Bailey, there's some of his, some of people who were very good friends of his who did not speak to Blake Bailey, were not interviewed, and I sort of speculate that they are waiting to be their own memoir.
1: Well, exactly. That's what I was thinking. So we'll strike your name from our list of uh... yes. You, you must.
3: No, <laughs> sad, 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 but no. Um, I was just writing um, last night with Joyce Carol Oates, who met him a number of times too, and just um, says he was, you know, incredibly funny, which everybody says, and I think that's one of the things that that, that makes him special that even up to his death, he is so funny, mm. genuinely funny and, and 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 witty. And this is not true, say, of Hemingway, who is now being um, represented in a big documentary by Ken Burns and who had a career, not unlike Ross, of sort of very early breaking out before he was 30 as a you know, famous celebrated novelist.
1: Still to come on the show, Alexandra Harris on a fresh look at the 18th century painter Joseph Wright of Derby, who painted more sombre scenes of cave-dwelling hermits than exciting laboratory-based scientific enlightenment. More auguries of death than lamps of progress. And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, may I remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode.
0: And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
4: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore.
2: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, and we're going to talk about a 21st century perspective on an 18th century figure. Our reviewer describes him as not an intriguing minor artist with an attractive line in candlelit drama, but among the great European painters of the 18th century. This is Joseph Wright of Derby. The name is significant, as we'll learn. And our reviewer is Alexandra Harris, the author of a number of books, including Weatherland, Artists and Writers Under English Skies. We're delighted that Alexandra is joining us today to talk about this intriguing and multifaceted artist. Alexandra, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Firstly, I said that his name was significant and I meant in the sense that it was, it was uh, he himself who, who insisted on adding the Of Derby, wasn't it? And, and can you tell us how important that was for him?
5: Yes, I'm really struck by the fact that even when he had a busy studio going in Liverpool and in Bath, he was painting portraits of the the fashionable spa dwellers, um, he still wanted to be of Derby. It was such an insistence on that Midlands and Northern identity. Um, And I'm always so interested by the way that people ally themselves with places and what that means to them. It's one of the things that really drew me to reviewing this book, actually. And I was fascinated to find that there had been an earlier painter of Derby whose work Joseph Wright would have known there was a a Thomas Smith of Derby um, who in the 1740s and 50s was making paintings and and then engravings of Derbyshire countryside and attracting picturesque tourists to the, the north showing them a kind of northern grotesque that gave you as much drama as a Salvatore Rosa painting and and that sense, not of patriotism, I think, but of um, allegiance and appreciation for a uh, locality both its people and its landscape and, and a sort of animating spirit to it runs through both Thomas Smith and, and, and Joseph Wright. And I just knew nothing about that, that connection. And it was one of the, the really fascinating revelations of, of Matthew Crask's book.
2: Mm, yes, sorry, I have to mention that we are talking principally about this, this new book, aren't we? And it's called Painter of Darkness by Matthew Crask. And that's, this is a deliberate counterpart to an earlier biography that called him a painter of light isn't it are you convinced by either either description
5: yes there's an ongoing uh, dialogue between krusk's book about the dark right and uh, the earlier big book on writer of Derby by, was by Benedict Nicholson and it was called painter of light and Nicholson was very firmly placing Joseph Wright in relation to the Enlightenment he he really established as common currency that version of Rite of Derby that I think is very popular now, which is that he paints mills and factories and and captures the spirit of Enlightenment education. And I think... When we look at the paintings of the experiment on with the bird and the air pump for example which people will probably know because it's in the the national gallery or the use of the orrery uh explaining to children uh how the the solar system works you know these are pictures of wonderful sociable education and that's the image of him that we've we've had i think of um bringing the light to us um i suppose i was always slightly doubtful about the mix of feelings in there because those pictures are also so full of shadow and because Wright of Derby's other work is so so different. There are a great many weeping women in, in Derby's work. And so I was very taken by Matthew Cusk's arguments, this fighting back really against the categorizing within those 18th century progressive circles we might associate with the lunar men for example that 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 group of inventors and scientists uh, like Josiah Wedgwood and Matthew Bolton um, who Genuglo wrote about so phenomenally beautifully in in the lunar men and and you just open that book and you're humming with the spirit of um, progress and invention in Birmingham and in Derby but Krask's argument is that Wright is a really different kind of thinker. I keep my options open, really. I think Wright probably straddles both the light and the dark. I mean, he was certainly deeply interested in the ideas of um, his many friends amongst the the lunar men. But I think it's really important what Matthew Krask does in taking us back into a culture that really valued sensibility and history painting. Um, We're we're not very good at looking at histrionic painting today. Juliet with her arm thrown up in horror, Miravan shielding his eyes from the abysmal things to be seen at the opening of a tomb. Lots of of pictures inspired by the stagings of uh, melodramatic tragedies in Drury Lane and and Krusk is very good at, at those visual sources they're not immediately going to capture the the more understated modern imagination. But Krask is great at taking us back into the the ways of seeing that were predominant at at the time in the 1770s, 1780s showing us how much Wright's paintings meant to audiences who would be moved to tears by the sight of, for example, the the mourning Indian widow, the Indian widow, an extraordinary large picture made specifically for Josiah Wedgwood to hang at Aturia Hall. And based on his reading about Native American grieving practices and and the way that women would be steadfast by the graves of their partners. And and we're made to look at this woman who will not move from the graveside and is absolutely stalwart and statuesque and patient, patience on a monument really, but from another culture.
2: That's still a very dramatic portrait, isn't it? Um, but obviously, as you say, of of grief, and it's in a way, it's very um, introspective. It seems as though um, you say in the piece he suffered from from some sort of depression, and you talk about how much the word melancholy encompassed at that point. Do you think that did influence his subject matter and how he chose to portray his subjects?
5: Yes, um, very well put. Um, so, writer, do w- you? says in in letters, says quite openly to friends such as William Hayley that his weak nerves have deeply influenced his whole way of being in the the world. Um, He says he can be depressed and rendered useless by a, a little censure, a little criticism. Small things would knock him out for weeks. He talks very movingly about dragging himself through months at a time, unable to lift a pencil. It looks like um, he has a form of depression that is uh, seasonally effective. So um, his low periods seem more to be in the summer months, actually. Although what's what's most important here is 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 that his he clearly did have some kind of depressive condition and he wanted to think about it to use it. People noticed his degree of sensitivity an unusual sensitivity to other people's grief, suffering, hopes and, and happiness as, as well but a kind of thinness of the line between him and and other people he was exceptionally receptive and, and responsive and when they looked at his paintings, they were willing to be exceptionally moved by them to think with the grieving widow in The Dead Soldier, for example, from whom we might turn away now because she's holding the slightly luridly greened hand of uh the corpse of her her fallen foot soldier husband it's too much it's too explicit for us now yes it is it's a very it's it is a
2: a very um it's rather it's upsetting isn't it because the soldier is not it's not a heroic scene at all you can't see his face his hair is all mussed up he's just down in the dust and she's
5: Left alone with the baby. That's it, um, and it seems very purposefully to resist all the iconography of patriotism of the heroic fallen soldier. It's it 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 clearly is referencing. Um, paintings of of the fallen generals and, and and so on but here very insistently as you say the the soldier is entirely anonymous and um inelegant and we're forced instead to concentrate on the horror that this this grieving woman is is uh, feeling now and will feel in the, in the future and the little baby on her lap turns towards us with something almost like a a, a Christ-like smile there's a was a clear reference to the Madonna with a child on her lap there and and it was understood in in semi-religious terms this this picture as, as a painting that might move us towards forms of, of religious charity.
1: What were Wright's motivations do you think? I mean did he want to expound a philosophy? Did he want to push people towards religion? Did he want to educate or did he want, and I'm not saying these things are mutually exclusive at all, but did he want to make money and be famous?
5: It's really interesting. Um, it seems to me from what I'm reading mostly of, of Crust but also you know other, other scholars of of Wight of Derby um, that landscape is so deep in his imagination that it's what keeps wanting to come Up to the top, and it's landscape that pushes him towards some of these other subjects. I might, I I might be really on my (laughs) own idiosyncratic path here, but. all the time that he's he's trying to be a, a portraitist in in Bath, for example, he's, he's not getting very far as a, a portraitist, though he's extraordinarily good at it and so expressive. But he's, he keeps working away at um, landscapes of Vesuvius uh, that he'd been making while on the Grand Tour in, in Italy and then landscapes in Rome with fireworks cracking above them and thinking his way towards landscapes of Matlock of the River Derwent that were influenced by the sketches he'd made in Italy. And I think that's perhaps what keeps him going. (laughs) Um, And by the end of his life, he really does want to be known as a landscape painter and in in so many of these images of of grieving women the the dead soldier, the Indian women, they are part of a of a landscape, and somehow the earth seems to feel with them or against them. It has an agency to it um i think I think that side of him is 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 really deeply important yes C- could you his paintings of the English
2: countryside, particularly of near where he lived of of derbyshire do you think could you call them early examples of of romanticism they certainly from, from my what i dimly uh, badly remember from my um education it's we're talking about sublime rather than beautiful <laughs> and i just i looked at dovedale by moonlight it's done it did a lot of dovedale but but they're mostly not sort of cheery they're very impressive and very they are beautiful but on the sublime end, beautiful dovedale by moonlight i just thought looked like an almost you could use it as a piece of lyrical ballads.
5: Such a good idea. Even
2: though it's a bit it's too early for that. <laughs>
5: no, I think I think you really could. And I and and, f- and for several reasons, in that he's interested in, in characters, in people who seem to somehow embody a, a place in the way that, that Wordsworth is, and in the stories they tell, and in the way that places make you think, uh, are are meditative somehow. And he really moves away from from spectacle, from just looking and pointing. I think that's that had been such a large part of the picturesque had been, oh, quick, that view. <laughs> and then that one, and oh, there's a dramatic rock. And Wright of Derby wanted to slow down and to allow, the, allow places to work on his imagination and to watch for how his own moods and it, the sort of disability really of his, his depression Shaped and influenced his response to places. There's a picture that Crask um, talks about at, at length called The Earth Stopper, which is perhaps I- I indicative here in that Wright um, of Derby takes a, a poem, um, Needwood Forest by Francis Mundy, and just homes in on a few passages of, of this this poem where we're out on a midnight walk through an ancient woodland, um, and no wonder that would have appealed to, to the writer of Derby, he likes his own midnight, midnight walks through ancient woodlands, I think. And he sees an earth stopper, um, a labourer working to, to stop up foxholes uh, ahead of a morning hunt, and the figure looks to him like a sexton, and That's the detail from this whole long-ranging landscape poem on which Wright of Derby seizes this analogy between a rural worker and sexton. And Krask is absolutely right that as soon as you have that in mind, looking at this picture of a man digging by a river, it ceases to be a sort of Georgic picture of a productive work. And and starts to be more a prompt to uh, meditation on on the shortness of life, on the relationship between man and nature, on on the rhythms and and moods of the the river and the the shrubs behind behind him. It's slower, it's um, much more evocative, I think. And that's what Wright wanted to do with his talent for shadowy landscape.
1: And in a social sense as well, it's, you know, this isn't, it's not a, an example of, of progress. Um, it's it's a, an example of, of a kind of an eternal rule in which the common labourer will fill holes to smooth the path for the landed gentry. So it's sort of an anti-enlightenment, anti-progress picture as well.
5: Yes, I, I feel quite doubtful about it. Um, quite what tone we get in Wright's depiction of humble labouring people, actually. Um, Krask is quite sure about his social conservatism uh, and a sort of moralizing actually about uh, the working people not getting above their. Their station. And that's part of his pushback against an Enlightenment idea of, of, of social and um, intellectual equality. But he also acknowledges that there's nothing patronising in the way Wright paints blacksmiths or the earth stopper. And I think that's a very powerful thing. He really is looking into the eyes of some of those old men hunched in the corner of a rural forge and asking who are these people, which is quite unusual in a way. He's not just using them for their characterful lined faces as as some genre painters might. He really is making them part of his world of thought.
2: Um, And Krask also, when we're talking about the blacksmith, the forge paintings, he also argues, doesn't he, because some people have been seeing it as, um, oh, he's he's painting a forge. It's all about industry and industrial revolution and things moving forward. And that's partly why he became characterised as as the Enlightenment. But in fact, he's saying, look, forges have been around for a very long time. If he really wanted to do industry, he could have done more more of the mills or there were some works just down the road. But in fact, this could be viewed as saying, this is the stuff that still exists and will carry on existing, though in fact it hasn't.
5: Yes, William makes the very simple point that Wright of Derby does not paint lots of mills and factories, and if he really wanted to set himself up as a painter of the Industrial Revolution, there are some key subjects he should have done. Um, I mean, it's not that far to go and uh, look at the huge ironworks at Colbert Dale. Um, he could have been making a big series of epic paintings of Arkwright's cotton mills. In in fact, when he turns to Arkwright's mills late on in life, he makes the into something like a country house estate. Um, Very sort of complicated sense of how he's going to position industry in in the landscape there. But yes, the forge pictures um, were some of the first that I knew of, of of Derby's. Um, And I was always gripped by the discovery that he had used gold. He'd used uh, gold leaf under the white paint to get the glowing ingots and I remember you know I remember seeing some of these pictures in um, an exhibition in 2008 at the Liverpool Walker Gallery when I was working in Liverpool it was just one of the revelatory moments for me was was thinking about this northern painter and yet I stood there and thought but these are like versions of the nativity, this ingot of, of molten iron is being made into something like the source of light. And then these ecclesiastical arches are rising above us. And I I couldn't, I couldn't work out how all of this went together. Um, for Krusk, the ecclesiastical arches are probably as important as the uh, the forging of, of metal. I mean, he actually amazingly traces the possible site of the paintings to Dale Abbey, a um, a half demolished abbey just outside Derby, where there were actually forges and other kind of workshops set up in the in the ruins, and suggests that perhaps. Um, we've got a sense of the humbleness of of work going on in this uh in the ruins of a previously grand structure so it becomes a kind of how are we fallen sort of yes i mean that in itself is is a pretty melancholy um Vision, isn't that's it? it. I don't think that's the whole picture but I like having that version of it and I just feel that we all need to hold together all these versions of Wright of Derby and that, that that's why I think he probably is a major painter because there is, you can look at these pictures so many ways at once.
2: Um and he was he was influenced by the Dutch and Flemish masters wasn't he and some people say oh he's the English Caravaggio do you think that's a good or helpful comparison or do you think he's just the English Joseph Wright of Derby
5: <laughs> you know all the all the comparisons are exciting um i and um, one thing it's very clear that he has a hugely fertile visual imagination that's taking all the time from different sources, um, from paintings, right across Europe, from, um, from popular entertainments like light boxes and rare shows, and using them, revising them purposefully for his own devices, um, tomb, tomb carvings and sculptures um, particularly. Um, so I think, every time that we sort of set off on a comparison, it's probably going to be substantial. It's going to get us somewhere. In terms of Caravaggio, part of the fascination there is um, that writer Derby is also using what had become a Baroque technique, the chiaroscuro, um, the dramatic contrasts. Um, and yet he's in a very Protestant society Picking up the aesthetics of Catholic European counter-reformation painting, which is in one sense an extraordinary thing to be doing. How is he going to make those aesthetics absolutely his own? And in, I'd love to read more about that actually. It's not, it's, it's not um, where Krask focuses at his attention, but it, it seems to me that this, this passage through from um, Caravaggio and perhaps the, the French Catholic painters like um, Georges de la Tour, who is such a master of candlelight, um, through to Wright of Derby, who uses illumination. Or these different kinds of not mystical but philosophical contemplation. I, oh gosh, I'd like to do some of that. <laughs> mm,
1: we come back around to the dead soldier, don't we?
5: Yes, yes we do. How, he's, how far is he letting in that echo of the Pietà and how far is he pulling away from it? And that, that tension is what makes it so exciting, I suppose.
2: Well, thank you so much. It, what it what it makes me want to do is go back and look at all the paintings as much as possible. In fact, we may even be able to do that at some point. Galleries may open.
5: <laughs> it well, that to... is. Um and I hope I hope the um the Museum and Art Gallery at Derby is is ready for a stampede. Um yeah. <laughs> have a stamping there. <laughs> exactly. They have been warned. <laughs>
2: Alexandra Harris, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure.
1: is all we have time for this week our thanks go to elaine showalter and alexandra harris thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye
4: Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Queen of Shops, Mary Portas, talks candidly about being one of the first gay couples to legally marry in the UK and the impact the sudden death of both her parents had on her as a teenager.
5: It was a closure of your childhood. It was a closure of family. It was a closure of those wonderful spirited times of that love infrastructure web security that just went
4: past imperfect with rachel sylvester and alice thompson mary portas in her own words now available as a podcast listen on the times radio app or wherever you get your podcasts